Hello, I'm Jason. And I'm Jeremy. And today we're talking about viruses. This is Data Cafe. Warning. Virus infection. Alert. Wow, okay, so we know that this is topical. We're talking about viruses because of coronavirus. But why are we as data scientists particularly going to be interested in viruses and the context of them? So, you know, we're in the grip of a, an international pandemic and, you know, everybody in the world potentially has not just heard of um, particular virus, coronavirus, COVID-19, but also, you know, every company in the world potentially is is, is affected by it in terms of its operation. So that's their employees not able to come to work or maybe they do come to work but they can't work at full productivity because of various constraints or extra precautions that are going to have to be taken I suppose so that's a reason right there why a company that has data scientists is going to be going okay we've now got a new world that we have to optimize through and find some I mean, forget efficiencies right now, you know, just get some notion of how we can operate within the current regulations or recommendations. Yeah, just bring us back to some level of normality or predictability about what's going to happen in the immediate future. All of our forecasts have suddenly turned short term, I guess. And that's where the data science team are going to be put the question, what can you do? What insights can you give? based on all of this sudden change in the company. Yeah, 100%. So if you're an airline and you've just seen your operation metaphorically go off a cliff, you have very little demand for your product. You're desperately trying to you know, motivate people to want to travel on your, on your airline again, but you've, you've also got constraints over how passengers can sit on your planes, uh, how they can use airport facilities, so it's a real challenge and it's, it's something that for better or for worse people really haven't planned for or, or foreseen in any kind of meaningful way so you know, there's there's a huge amount of of optimization and scientific thinking i think can be attached to to making this work yeah and the point of scientific thinking is so important because in the face of the unknown who can you ask i mean all of these companies don't have specialists or epidemiologists and to turn to and even in the field we're seeing so many unknowns i mean the government advice can be so varied based on all of the updates that come out because they're consulting the specialists but even just in any scale of company you want to ask your analysts your data science team as a scientist what's your take on this but it can be daunting right it's it's a field that i'm certainly uncomfortable with and we can look at the data but we're not the specialist, and it really brings to um, into view the idea that data scientists have to consult with the specialist. We need to work with the subject matter expert or bring in that domain expertise, and we need to understand it to a level where we can pull the data together and frame it in a way that answers the question. So, and here we're going to talk about um, statistical genetics. Indeed. So we're lucky enough to talk to Dr. Kat James, who is an expert in statistical genetics and we've got a, an interview with her and she has some really interesting perspectives on this from her work she did a dfil and then a postdoctoral uh, research assistantship at 
University of Oxford, for the Nuffield Department of Medicine, and the Wellcome Trust Centre for Human Genetics. So, I mean, she's she's really walked the walk in this area. And she did some really exciting work on not a coronavirus as it happens, but a related virus, an RNA virus in this sense, uh, HIV-2, which, as I learnt, HIV has been, you know, one of the diseases, infections of, of the 20th century. It was one of the most deadly infections, uh, surpassed even Spanish flu. So it's a really challenging virus to have studied. And there are some really interesting statistical issues which emerge from having tried to understand it more that she talks over. Cool. So should we set up any of the context of the terminology that's going to be used? Because I certainly have a few questions about parts of it. So viruses are they're actually not alive. They're organisms that only exist in the information that they convey outside of the host. It's only the moment that they come into contact with a, um, an animal or a human being that they suddenly have life breathed into them and they suddenly start to do what, well, what viruses do. And they are... I never thought of it like that. Yeah, no, it, it's it's amazing. What's really happening with me right now is I'm imagining viruses as things that can like float around in the air, you know, like all of the scaremongering that's happened and valid scaremongering for, you know, personal protective equipment. But it brings the imagination to the fore where we think of the virus as something that is a cloud around a person who I need, now need to be a meter or two meters away from. But I like that distinction that, no, it's it's real existence is within the host. Yes, com- completely. The, as a piece of almost information theory, I think they're just amazing. And you can hear when we talk to Kat how how much respect she has for, for viruses. She calls them the, the Ferrari of evolution. It's a, an amazing, amazingly condensed organism. So... I mean, so I, as I say, we we ought to define this a little bit. So viruses are just pieces of DNA or RNA coated in a protein. And and it's the DNA or the RNA which contain that that information. And, you know, how much information? It's it's not a it's not a lot. I mean, so HIV one has around ten thousand what are called base pairs of of information so now we need to start actually talking a little bit about what that means yeah like what what is it in a person for example yeah so in in, in a human being there are about three billion base pairs wow. as i understand it so so a virus having ten thousand base pairs is pretty pretty small beans but ten thousand base pairs turns out to be about 2.5 kilobytes of data so you know just for comparison that's that's a little more than the amount of RAM that went up on Apollo 11 in 1969. It's, a, it's, it's about the same amount that you would buy in a, a computer from 1981. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a tiny, tiny amount of... Like my head went straight to floppy disks. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Showing my age there. Right. And you know, so it's really not big, considering what these things do. Which is with that with that two thousand five hundred bytes of data, they are 
able to invade a host cell. They're able to hijack the genetic machinery of of a cell, take it over, insert their own code into the cell's genetic factory, if you like, and then reproduce themselves in such a way that they are not immediately ejected from the host body, not immediately picked up by the immune system and destroyed. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's pretty impressive for only 2.5 kilobytes of, of code, <laughs> yeah. as, as I see it. Yeah, impressive if not scary. <laughs> yeah, right. So just for a little bit of context, so the, these base pairs, they consist of four bases, four characters, if you like, a, T, C, and G, and that's the sort of the equivalent of binary for a genetic sequence. So if you were writing it in terms of a, a computer program, you might use you know machine code, and that would get compiled down to, to, to binary code and so on. But in genetics, it's these bases. And so when we talk about base pairs, it's these pairings of A to T or C to G pairs that are linked together in the uh, the genome of a virus or in the genome of a, of a human being or of a plant or whatever that encode the information to allow it to allow it to grow and the the primer i had to sort of go to when i was looking at this was you know you start with the dna the dna is the raw information and that gets copied somehow that has to be taken that information has to be taken to the factory that makes the proteins that the dna describes so DNA describes proteins, and the mechanism that takes that information from the DNA is, is called RNA. So viruses have very cleverly, I mean, they're not, they're not entities, they're not even alive, so it's not really clever, but they've evolved to take advantage of this process. So they can hijack the cell at various levels, either at the DNA stage or the RNA stage, but... The particular virus that the cat looks at, as I said, was HIV and HIV2, which is an RNA virus. So it hijacked this transcription process just before it creates proteins, I believe. And there are lots of other RNA viruses. The coronavirus, which we're familiar with at the moment, is, is another such RNA virus. And it's clearly a pervasive mechanism uh, and, and one which is you know clearly troubling the the geneticists and biologists of the world right now. Cool. Really interesting. So it's my huge pleasure to welcome to the Data Cafe today, uh, Dr. Kat James, who's head of data science at the Royal Mail. And it's particularly relevant because uh, obviously with virology and uh, uh, pandemics on the forefront of everyone's mind at the moment, it seems, I think, quite a good moment to have someone who has previously been trained as a statistical geneticist um, looking at viruses and epidemics, and also someone who's moved into data science lately as well. So welcome to the Data Cafe, Cap. Thanks for having me. So particularly delighted to, to have you on because um, I happen to come across a paper of yours talking about your use of statistical techniques to analyse a particular virus, not as it happened, uh, coronavirus, but quite a pernicious virus nonetheless, um, HIV or a particular a particular version, HIV-2, in fact. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that work? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this was work that I started in my PhD and then carried on into my postdoc. 
Um, so my PhD was in statistical genetics, in particular RNA viruses that cross over from animal to human populations causing global pandemics, um, which is very, very timely at the moment. But yeah. So I looked at HIV-2. So HIV-2 is a, is a separate virus from HIV-1, so everyone knows about HIV-1. Fun fact, if you're interested, was the most deadly pandemic virus of the 20th century, which is a crown that maybe you shouldn't be proud to have. No. Um, but over the course of the epidemic, has killed about 40 million people to date. So it's a, it's a, a really serious issue. I believe about 30 million active cases. Yeah. Huge virus. Um, HIV-2 is, a, is a, actually a distinct virus from HIV-1, but it's got lots and lots of similarities. But the major difference that it has is that it's not as good at killing people. So it only kills about 20% of the people it infects compared to HIV-1, where it's over 99%. So we're really interested in the differences between the two viruses and the genetics and what we can learn about that and what we could apply from that to the treatment of HIV-1. So I guess taking taking to the first steps first, why do you need to sequence a virus in the first place if you want to understand it? So viruses are actually absolutely incredible things. They're sort of like the Ferrari of evolution. Um, they are simplistic minimalism in its absolute greatest form but incredibly powerful at the same time so hiv1 has a genome of about 10,000 base pairs so that's just 10,000 positions which have information in them um, and that's all it is that's all it is at its heart so anything that you want to do be it developing a vaccine um, understanding the evolution understanding how a virus evolves within a host so hiv is particularly good at evolving um, it evolves very 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 rapidly one of the most rapidly evolving viruses in the world um, and actually within a person you can see evolution over the course of um, sort of 20 year infections so we want to understand how it evolves how it evolves to evade the immune system um, and then one of the other main things is just to, to understand what a virus is so coronavirus and novel coronaviruses we're, we're still interestingly from a geneticist point of view at the point where we're still trying to work out exactly what this thing is so mm. Coronaviruses have very big genomes, about 30,000 base pairs, which is about as big as you get for an RNA virus. But, you know, we're starting to look at what's its source. So we're comparing the sequence that we've got to sequences um, from other known viruses. Can we work out even which animal it's come from, which country it's come from? All of these questions can be answered by sequencing a virus. I see. So, so getting the sequence allows you to sort of get this evolutionary history then of, of its development geographically where it's come from even? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing, I talk about evolution and we think about evolution as being the act of millions or billions of years, but actually in viruses it can be the acts of days or weeks. Um, so when we talk about the evolution and talk about how a virus has evolved, particularly in an active pandemic, we're starting to look for things like transmission clusters. So one thing that's been spoken about quite a lot in the news recently is the idea of a super spreader. And this, this happens in all viruses and it shouldn't be a surprise that they exist. But we have an R of one, but that R is just an average. Some people infect no one, some people infect hundreds of people. Um, the most productive HIV-1 super spreader had infected at least 10,000 people, we think. Wow. Just, oh my goodness. <laughs> For a sexually transmitted disease, that's impressive. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, you start to see you start to see these trans transmission clusters, and actually, they teach us a lot about not only the behaviour of people, which obviously is sort of fun to think about, um, but it also tells you about the virus itself. So, if a certain variant 
pops into existence viruses tend to mutate randomly but if it pops into existence and we start to see big transmission events so big clusters forming from those variants it tells us a lot about the biology of the virus and about treatments that might help to curb the spread and treat people who are ill completely critical then so i mean i noticed that in the paper that you you wrote as a result of your uh, phd and postdoc you uh, you were able to develop a new technique for looking at these new human viruses. So what were, what were the main challenges um, you had to get over in order to come up with that new technique from a say, statistical perspective? So I think that the, main, the main problem that we had to overcome was really the lack of information. So when you think about viruses and you think about sequencing viruses, typically viruses that are very well known, so HIV-1, measles, all of these viruses that you know, we know a lot about, are pretty easy to sequence because we can use techniques that we've used for a long time, which involve designing experiments that amplify and capture portions of the genome based on prior knowledge. Um, whereas when it comes to rarer, rarer viruses like HIV-2 or novel viruses like the novel coronavirus, we actually don't know enough about the virus to really be confident that we're designing experiments that will accurately capture the diversity so it's a bit like going fishing but with a fishing rod that's got a bias on it so you know we we know we want to catch a trout and we've put trout's favorite bait on but you know actually the interesting thing from our perspective might not be a trout at all it might be some so so it's it's learning it's learning what the nature of the the beast is as far as your your new virus is and it's and then it's being able to use that information to then design the experiments design the sequencing techniques that are going to be most effective to to getting that information out of the virus is that right yes yes so basically what we're always trying to do is we're trying to get the least biased picture of the diversity in the virus so viral viral populations we think when we've got flu we've got the flu but actually we haven't got the flu we've got millions of variants of the virus in us um, and we really need to capture that that diversity to understand disease progression and to understand how a virus is evolving so the techniques that i looked at were essentially random so we are looking to randomly sequence all of the RNA in your body. So I don't even care if it's virus and I sequenced a lot of human RNA in the process. Um, the majority of what I sequenced obviously, unsurprisingly, was human. Um, but we're looking at using techniques to randomly sample this data. That's experiment randomly, experimentally random techniques. And then using statistical techniques on the back of that to build back up a picture of what's the virus. So looking through the data and saying, where do these reads maps? Do I think this is human? Do I think this is a virus I know and do I think this is a virus that I've never seen before? Um, and it's quite a, a quickly evolving and I think we'll see it evolve a lot more quickly after this pandemic's over um, method that is used in, in a technique that's called genomic surveillance, uh, which is acting field. So basically these viruses, so we, we all think we've been blindsided by coronavirus. We haven't been or we shouldn't have been um, because this is where they come from. So typically they come out of jungles, they come out of wet markets, anywhere where humans have a not typical interaction with wild animals. The viruses spill over into human populations and they, don't, they typically don't go anywhere. Um, sometimes they become pandemic. That's very rare. What's more common is that you'll see a small outbreak. And actually we want to, if someone, you know, if someone's a monkey hunter in the jungle and they come up to me and they're feeling ill, I want to be able to take a sample of their blood and look for things without knowing what I'm looking for. So I want to be able to say, I, I suspect you might have a zoonotic RNA virus mm. because you regularly eat bats, yeah. or, you know, whatever you might do. Um, yes. And I want, I want to be able to take a blood sample from you and look at what genetic material you have in there and try yes. to identify what I think is making you ill. 
and this is this is mind blowing, right? For me, anyway. So, it, which is, you you, you know, you're not you're not finding just a single virus. You're saying you're you're finding hundreds of varieties of the same virus in the bloodstream of of an individual that's infected. So, hence what you're saying earlier about the evolution of this thing within an individual. You've got this population which is actually evolving within a person, a single individual, not just not just within a population. Yes, absolutely. And the term that we use in HIV is a, um, HIV quasi species. So we so we we treat every person as if they have their own species of HIV that's distinct from everyone else's and oh, wow. um, really really confusingly you can actually have HIV more than once at the same time as well so you can have Great. more than one quasi species at the same time you that's can also a really have, bad day. have HIV yeah you can have HIV1 and HIV2 at the same time you can, yeah this <laughs> Gosh. Okay. This, this is this is amazing. So so there's 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 loads of statistical challenges then in, in analysing and pulling out this data. Not least the fact that you're looking at not a single version of the virus at the same time. Um, you're looking at many different versions. You're looking at I understand tens of gigabytes of data from a single individual. Is that right? Yeah. So no. So um, the statistical challenges are are enormous. So some of the things that you have to deal with, and I, I find this really interesting as a data scientist because um it's pretty much what data scientists do whether or not we we like to admit it publicly is you know you get gigabytes and gigabytes of data and it's all of the rna in a blood sample so it's everything in there there's human rna there's viral rna um viruses are sort of themselves error prone so we have real true variants which are at a, a a proportion of the population that makes them significant and then we have sort of viral junk so they've had a mutation but actually it's knocked out the whole functionality of the virus but we might pick that up Um, and really interestingly there's also an error rate on the sequencing experiment itself so I will see diversity that is an artifact of my experiment rather than an artifact of what's seen there so it's trying to look you end up using a lot of like very very classical sort of Fisher type statistics to say if I've taken this population, if I've taken this sample, what can I infer about the population? Yeah. So, you know, having having seen a level of diversity, what do I believe the true diversity is? And you've got an uncertainty principle going on, whereby the act of carrying out of the experiment has itself changed what you actually observed in the experiment, which is a, um, yeah. a, a yeah. particularly exciting scenario to be in. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I understand then that you ha- had to use a, a technique called R- RNA shotgun sequencing to get through the um, statistical minefield that you've, um, you've outlined with biases and, uh, and such like. So, given that that worked so effectively on, on HIV2, I guess, you know, the obvious question is, what's the prospect of, of it being an effective uh, technique for understanding more about um, COVID-19 and um, coronaviruses in general? So I think actually, unfortunately for us, in terms of coronavirus, it's a bit too late. So it, coronavirus is already in, in human populations and, and we sort of understand what it is. Coronaviruses are a very, very weird family of viruses. They don't tend to mutate, which is unlike other RNA viruses. Um, but what's interesting about the coronavirus, as I said earlier, and I think it really does bear thinking about is, you know, this shouldn't have come as a surprise to us. So this is the seventh coronavirus known to infect humans um four of them the old coronaviruses the sort of like stalwarts of coronavirus cause the common cold they cause about 15 percent of colds and most people have had at least one coronavirus infection in their lives so you know they, they're commonly known um, and then all the sort of big gun um xenotic viruses of the last of basically of the last 
20 years have been coronaviruses. You know, SARS is coronavirus, MERS is coronavirus. So we should not have been surprised that our next pandemic virus was a coronavirus. What should surprise us is that we weren't looking for it. You know, we, we weren't, we should, the second that anyone who's been into contact with with a wet market or a wild animal or a bat, you know, anything of that nature turns up with a respiratory illness, we should be using RNA-seq or something similar to say, mm. you know, what, what viruses has this person got? Mm. So, I mean, I think, I think it will be helpful with, with learning about the evolution of the virus. Right. One of the shames about coronavirus from a genetic point of view is that the infection is typically quite short lived. So we don't have great samples. So no. in HIV, you've always got HIV. So if I want to work out what virus you've been infected with, I can just take a sample of your blood and it still sits there, which is one of the issues that, that we're having at the moment with the uh, test for coronavirus versus the antibody test. So once you've cleared coronavirus, I can now no longer say anything about the virus that you had. I can look and see if you've mounted an antibody response. If you've mounted an antibody response, I can say, I think you've had coronavirus, but yeah. I can't say anything about where you got it from, what part of transmission cluster you were from. Um, and I think also that is something that, that we should be thinking about for the next pandemic, which is, you know, how do we use genomic surveillance to work out when they arrive? And how do we use genomic surveillance during a pandemic event mm. to understand the evolution and to understand the spread? So getting a better data pipeline really for your population and for your pandemic surveillance is is going to be the the key challenge to preventing another um, epidemic of this of this sort of proportion absolutely and if and if you look at some of the stats that's being done at the moment and um, you know we we assume that the epidemic in this country came from italy because italy's quite nearby and they had a lot of cases but that's about as far as it goes you know we we try to use public health methods and non-pharmaceutical interventions, MPIs as they're called, but ultimately they failed. They've completely fallen over. You know, we haven't been able to contain the virus and we haven't been able to track the transmission. No. It's only now that we, we've got a handle on it and we look back and look at antibody testing that we can say actually 17% of people in London have been infected. Now it's a huge amount of people you know, with, with no surveillance. So yeah, I think it, it's interesting. It should, change the way that we think about viruses it should change the way we think about dealing with them i think there's we sort of have quite a fatalistic view that you know oh well it's a pandemic whereas that's not the case at all we've got loads of information we've got loads of techniques at least all these techniques i'm discussing are quite new you know they weren't yeah. they weren't around when sars sars was around you know they there's a lot of there's a lot more in our arsenal and i think being being more prepared is is really what we should learn from this pandemic so I think I think my last question, Kat, will be um, around your work now in data science. So you've made this interesting transition then from statistics and genetics to to data science. Have you have you found any interesting crossovers from that work? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that there's two ways to look at it. So I think in terms of mindset, I still think I'm a scientist. You know, I, mm. I still believe that my job is at heart a scientist. So I see a problem that I don't know how to solve or I don't understand or I think oh there's something interesting going on there and I will perform some experiments and I'll collect some data and I'll use some statistics to to look at you know what what's happening and, and I, I think that's the same when I was a research scientist as it is now that I'm a data scientist you know I, I still at, at heart feel like a scientist and think I, my work is of a scientific endeavour um, but I think there's, there's the techniques that have really pulled over from one to the other is is the understanding of population statistics i think it's a hugely underrated and underused branch of statistics you know if we 
if we're talking about taking a sample and we want to make an inference about the population which is something that we do all the time we do it ourselves naturally and when you watch the government briefings every day they're doing it left right and center it's unbelievable the number of you know how many cases are there and you know we sort of go with a little sidebar oh by the way the testing strategy is a bit different it's a huge assumption you know we've got we sort of got to throw everything out there yeah. um so i think that definitely and then i used quite a lot of bayesian techniques in my phd and i think bayesian statistics is really powerful and even if you don't directly use it in data science all the time like that way of thinking and that you know i will continue to collect data and continue to refine my model rather than i have built a model and i think it is right Mm. Um, I think that's that's something that that I use all the time. That mm. way of mm. thinking. Yeah. Um, Kat, thank you so much for joining us in the Data Cafe. That was really great. Thank you so much for having me. That's really interesting, and I love that Kat has moved from one field of science, genetics, to the field of data science, where, to me you know, you haven't stopped being a scientist. She's a scientist and the data that she's looking at is different. And so the questions that are put to her are different, but still fundamentally, like she says, we follow the scientific method and whatever the problem is, whatever the um, kind of hypothesis might be, you follow this method of, you know, establishing what is it that we want to ask? What is the data that we have? Do we need to gather more data? form our hypothesis, run our experiment and do our analysis and ultimately get a conclusion that itself is purely representative of the question that was asked and the data that was available to answer it. And this idea of continuing to update that is so important. And as we see the situation evolve and like anything, there will be ways that it evolves that will never have been captured in the data originally. And never known until almost hindsight makes you realize oh we sh- we should have thought that all right yeah i i think i think geneticists probably might be forgiven for being a bit grumpy about data science that they're, they're really the original data scientists in this respect they yeah. processed gigabytes of data nowadays more than ever but but they have done for for ages in in terms of the size of these data sets they've been working with and they're trying to understand function and consequence and causality from the, these data sets that they look at yeah so that, that you know they've been they've been doing this for a while and you know what you can get out of these these genomes is is extraordinary i mean the purpose of looking at hiv in in this uh, level of detail and you know coronavirus now as well is it's geospatial analysis, you know, where's it come from? Where did it make yeah. this transition from animal to human? Indeed, has that happened in more than one location, as, as seems possible in some in some viruses scenarios anyway? Uh, and and then obviously the the you know sixty-four billion dollar question really, or possibly more, which is you know, how can you make a, a, a vaccine or a treatment that is going to be um, effective yeah. against the virus, which clearly everybody really wants to get yeah. get some progress on. And that brings the question of what are the challenges, or at least from our point of view as data scientists, what are the statistical challenges right now with all of this? It's a lovely 
potted version of all of the things I think that make data science hard. What Kat had to do with her research was overcome some really challenging issues that she had with a technique that was previously there where if you tried to sample the the virus RNA that was floating around a blood sample with this approach called target amplification, which was the previous technique, then you were automatically biasing your view of yeah. the types of virus that were floating around in that sample. It wasn't yeah. getting you this ground truth, if you like, about what was what was out there. I loved when you drew the um, uncertainty principle into that. As, as a physicist, I was like, oh, I really get it now. <laughs> this idea of whether Schrodinger's cat is or isn't in the box. <laughs> yeah. I introduced my bias by opening the box. Exactly. Maybe that's too vague. <laughs> <laughs> I think it just adds to these, this, this challenge, which actually data scientists see on a day-to-day basis, which is that it's perfectly possible that the job that you've been asked to do, maybe looking at some marketing data or looking at some customer journey data in whatever industry you're working in, you don't have an identifier which you can just go, oh yeah, I can see exactly where they were, I can see exactly what they were doing, and I can see I have indefatigable evidence for why they've taken a particular course of action. You don't have any of that necessarily. Or you don't or, or if you do, you only have a very reduced subset of it. And I think that's 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 very typical of a problem that a data scientist has in a company. Yeah, we were talking earlier about about how a data set can be censored in the sense of looking at it in this way. So when you run the experiment, you don't know what's going to happen directly after the time interval where you've conducted that experiment. And you don't know what happened before the time where you started to collect your data on this experiment. So you have all of these potential areas of censorship where the really interesting case could have happened just one second later than your experiment ran for, for all you know. Or it could be, you know, undefinably in far in the future and your hypothesis will never have gotten sight of that. Yeah, I think some of the other things that she encountered were really interesting, which is that you're in a situation where you, you're being asked to make conclusions about a population from you know, a very small sample, maybe, of individual data or a cross-section of individual data from a subpopulation. That, and that speaks at the genetic level, clearly, but it also speaks at the, the current problem that we have, the current coronavirus problem, where yeah. are we testing? And have we been testing in the same way? What strategies have we used? And how have those strategies changed over time? And now that we've changed those strategies, actually, are we entitled to draw the same conclusions from those observations to enable us to estimate things like the current number of infected people in the UK or in Florida or wherever? Yeah, and you always read about how what we're seeing is the number of reported cases. It's not the actuals. And there's such a censorship that comes with that. And one example that we can bring to mind comes even from the back of talking about censorship is 
looking as a data scientist at churn modeling. So churn is whether a customer has left the business agreement that they have with you or stopped using the service that they have. So if I stop using my phone network with whoever my phone provider is. But the churn modeling is something that we've seen the applicability of survival analysis, as it's called, where you don't know what the censorship is. And that's exactly, you, you don't know necessarily that your customer has even has even left right i mean they they might have departed with no noticeable observation having been made on the part of your company so so it's incredibly challenging sometimes to derive especially from a marketing department which will often often come to a data science team and say look we we just want to be able to identify all of the customers that have departed us and that are no longer getting our buying our products buying our services and and then we'll call them all up and we'll bring them back on board or something like that yeah and it sounds so easy (laughs) yeah it sounds really easy from a business point of view you know i mean the customers either still with us or they're not and it's it's so much more complex than that there's so many levels of clarification around how do you define a customer or define behavior that tells you they're still with you or they've just you know gone quiet for a little while yeah they might have done that they might have changed their operating relationship with you so they've appeared at a different part of your organization if you're working for a big company it can be many many different types of products and one product has you know displaced another as far as this company is concerned so yeah. so it's being on top of all of the data channels to enable you to successfully pick out a good churn, if you like, is very hard. And this is clearly something which yeah. has challenged and been worked on by uh, geneticists for, for, for some time, which I quite like. Yeah, yeah, because it brings it back to the idea of how do you set up the experiment? How do you set up the test that you're doing? And so in this case, we talk about coronavirus testing and even the test isn't accurate to a high degree. And I have a friend who had the symptoms and um, was pretty sure that she had coronavirus, went through the test at the time and um, results came back and said, no, you didn't have it. She was convinced. And now since, I think it's a couple of months later, maybe she has got the antibody test and that came back positive and says, yeah, you have the antibodies. So you obviously did have it at the time. So she is one of those false negatives from the testing process. And and that came out very clearly from Kat's talk around this, where she's saying, you know, when you take these samples, you get false positives, false negatives from particular viruses that you might might be seeing in a in a sample. You get mutations of the virus which are just sort of broken down versions which never worked and would never be viable and then you just get artifacts of the experiment and all of these things are things that we're seeing in the coronavirus pandemic and the translation of the testing results and the the false positives the false negatives and you know associated true positives and negatives you know and how we're making those inferences towards the core parameters in the epidemiology of the outbreak yeah and as a data scientist like how are we going to model a viral outbreak like this for example yeah so i mean if you're a if you're working for a 
a large company that has, you know, hundreds of thousands maybe of employees, then this is sweeping through your company just like it's sweeping through the population and wanting to know which office is going to be affected next maybe or which uh, um, operation or which depot is going to be impacted is is really important. And, and then, you know, when's it going to come back online? So, I mean, the classic way of modelling these epidemiological outbreaks is is using something called an SIR model. So that's needs a little bit of unpacking. So S, SIR is an acronym for susceptible, infected and removed. So the the simple sort of setup here is that you start off with a population of could be animals, people, whatever, that are uninfected there's no virus, right? That's a, that's a happy, happy place to be. And yeah. so your entire population is basically susceptible to infection. And then, right. you know, just like we saw, there was it started with one or two cases and it just got worse and worse. So then a proportion of this susceptible population become infected. And then once they, once you come out the other side of that, hopefully it's not obviously been the case and there's a lot of really sad stories out there but you know hopefully you develop immunity like your friend did and then depending on the biology of this disease you know that might be the end of the the matter that might mean that you're you're now safe you know from that particular disease it may be that the immunity only lasts a certain amount of time or it may be you know that you know unfortunately you you don't make it that that it's um yeah it's a it's a fatal disease as far as your particular biology is concerned so then obviously at that point there's a rather a large number of people in this case who drop out of the population so that's that goes into the removed category so but then there are lots of modifications of this and from the coronavirus perspective then you've got this really interesting phase where people are infected but they've no idea they're infected yeah but they are transmitting the disease nonetheless so there are asymptomatic right, right exactly and that's and that's really that's really challenging but but it it's just a, it's just a segment of the population of the overall population like like any of the other partitions so then now you've got sort of susceptible but not infected you've got infected and asymptomatic infected and symptomatic and immune and so on so so you can, you can you can construct these equations which describe the transition in fairly straightforward terms from one one of these stages to the next and look at how you know through the usual medium of populations mixing you you get growth in the infected population or hopefully eventually growth in the immune part of the population the challenge is deriving the parameters for this model in a in an effective way that's going to be reflective of of reality from the test data that you have yeah God, it's a lot to think about <laughs> it's daunting in the sense that it's so pervasive and also so tragic you know has such a a sad element to it and it just kind of puts in perspective that a lot of the data science problems that i would ever work with don't have that level of impact no you know it's um so what if my customers turned they've just gone somewhere else they're not in the removed group absolutely i mean you you look at these equations and 
the spread of this thing happens via something called a, a mass action dynamic. So basically, you look at the you look at the size of your population that haven't been infected, so the susceptibles. You look at the size of the population that have been infected, and the infection rate is one which you know links the the size of the potential population and the size of the infected population by literally multiplying them together. So in those circumstances, you really do see the hard end of exponential growth. And, you know, some countries are very sadly going through this right now. And and it's, it's not just equations, it's actual, you know, it's actual people and actual lives being disrupted and, and yeah. in, in, in a very sad way, as you say. So what can we learn from this, I guess, as a data scientist? Not just what can we do or bring to it, but what's the big learning that I want to take away? So I think understanding when your technique, your observation technique, your measurement technique, your sensor is producing biased results is only looking at a subset of the population and maybe is blind to a completely other subset of the population so you know if if nobody knows that they're infected how do you know how can you deduce that someone isn't infected yeah we discussed a, a little bit how that can impact in in marketing data and sales analysis and that kind of thing that's a technique that, uh, that is very useful from a data scientist perspective and then you, you alluded to it earlier jason the the idea that you can't just learn a set of parameters for your model and then walk away and say, that's my job done. You've got to continually be refining your model to adapt to the, the, actual, the actual state on the ground, the actual data that you are recording and observing and making deductions from. Yeah. So Katz comes from a, a Bayesian statistics background. So the Bayesian approach of going, I'm always refining my model. I'm always using data to update my estimators yes. and update my parameters. I think that's very important and powerful. Yeah, and it brings the line to mind that all models are wrong, but some models are useful. And yeah. as a data scientist, the big thing we want to at least highlight is where a model is useful and in which ways they might be wrong. That's really, really interesting, Jeremy. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us today at the Data Cafe. You can share, subscribe or review online and please join us again next time.